The Nonprofit Happy Hour. A weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, music, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Learn more online at mediamakingchange.org. I'm Rachel Miller Howard. On today's show, we bring you a conversation with John DeVoe, who's the executive director for Waterwatch. That was Handel's Water Music, which we played because we are talking ostensibly about water today. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joined in the studio today, uh, Water Watch's Executive Director, John DeVoe. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So what? let's start with what water are you watching? That's that's not an easy thing to say three times fast. What water are you watching? Well, we're watching freshwater in Oregon, surface and groundwater. Okay. And we're Oregon specific. I mean, we cross the border a little bit in the Klamath and in places like the Walla Walla, but we're Oregon specific, so we're watching Oregon's water. Right, because water doesn't necessarily uh, heed to political boundaries, but. No, it doesn't. Water Watch is primarily. Uh, you are working with uh, Central and South Oregon primarily, so Klamath Basin, the Deschutes, uh, and and the and the Rogue Basin. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, our mission is to protect and restore stream flows in Oregon's rivers for fish, wildlife, and people who depend on healthy rivers. You know, program wise, we have three priority basins. Those are the Rogue, the Klamath, and the Deschutes. Mm-hmm. Um, Membership-wise, we have more members in Greg Walden's congressional district than any other congressional district in the state. So we, we do get a lot of support from rural eastern and southern Oregon, for sure. Um, but we do we keep, it, we keep track of things all over the state. Um, we have a water and growth program that looks at municipal water issues. Uh, we have a stream flow program that's statewide. Um, but the other two things we do that are pretty interesting are we take out obsolete dams, and we try and secure balanced water policies for Oregon as we move into this changed climate that we're going to be experiencing. 
Um, so it's really about stream flows, dam removal, and balanced water policies. John, you're, you're a lawyer, correct? That's correct. Okay, so I'm going to spend some time making you define words, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you say that you're protecting uh, stream flow for, uh, for, for, for fish, who are you protecting it against? Well, you know, the story of Western water is a, is a fascinating story. Um, the, the laws and the rules that, that govern our waters kind of came out of the 49er mining camps in the Sierras, where some person showed up and wanted to wash the gravel, and then somebody else showed up and wanted to wash the gravel too. And instead of shooting each other, they decided they, they would have, you know, this rule of first in time, first in right. Um, and, and that is generally how the Western states govern their water distribution. If you got here early, you have a higher priority to that water than somebody who got here later. Unfortunately, in that scenario, the environment came really, really late to the table. And so ecological needs for water, uh, needs for healthy rivers, they were kind of recognized only after all the water in the dry season, at least, in much of the West had already been given away to promote settling the West, colonialism, those interests. Um, and so when we say we're protecting stream flows, our efforts are to try and keep some water in the stream for all the valuable public uses of water that we have for fisheries, for recreation, for pollution dilution, all these benefits that water give to us for the tourism economy, for the fishing economy. Um, there are a lot of interests that benefit directly from healthy rivers. Um, so it, it, should I infer, though, that the... The state laws uh, are set up to give first priority to agricultural uses. Yeah, it, agricultural and municipal uses get first crack generally because, uh, you know, the, the system was set up to give preferences to the white folks who showed up. I mean, you know, the tribal folks were here first. They've been largely left out of, of these equations. They have to enter into these settlements or go through, you know, big litigation to get their water needs recognized. Um, and again, the, the needs of rivers, the needs of, of, of fisheries like salmon were recognized really late in the process, partly as a result of our work in Oregon. They were recognized at all. But um, yeah, we're trying to bring balance to a system that is really set up to benefit out of stream use of water. And now, now um, it was about 15 years ago, there was a fairly tense standoff about uh, the Rogue River, I believe, in Southern Oregon, uh, with, with, with farmers uh, being cut off from some of the water and... The Klamath? Maybe it was the Klamath. Yeah. Uh, were, was that something that you were involved with? Is that something that Water Watch uh, is, is part of? Not yeah. the standoff, but the, the but those sorts of issues. Yeah, we're very involved in in those decisions, um, and we were we were we had representatives at the headgates when the bucket brigade was happening. And and son, can you walk me through a little bit of the the history of what what happened? Who was the bucket brigade, and and how did that? How was that all resolved? Because that seems like a really great case study to look at. Yeah, well, I can tell you it hasn't been resolved. Okay. I mean, the history of it started with, I would say, uh, you know, the Indian Wars, when you had tribal communities that were often salmon-centric 
you know, that salmon were central to their culture, central to their economy, central to their diet. Um, and settlers showed up and certain promises were made by the federal government to settlers. So you have the establishment of the Klamath Irrigation Project and other irrigation projects in the basin, which is a big project. You have dams built um, that, were, that are now owned by Pacific Corps. There are four big main stem dams that are scheduled to come out pretty soon. Um, you, have, you had the establishment of national wildlife refuges in the basin, um, several of those. And these are internationally significant for migratory waterfowl. Um, you have the Endangered Species Act, which is recognizing that some of these species aren't doing very well, either locally or, uh, you know, in their range. And so all of these things kind of came together in the Klamath um, and are still coming together in the Klamath. Um, the basic problem in the Klamath is that too much water has been promised to too many interests. And until we bring demand for water back into balance with what nature can provide, you know, some legitimate interest is going to get shorted when there's a short water year. And, you know, one of the interesting things about water is we have these legacy issues, this antiquated system we're managing water under, and now you have climate change coming and sitting down on top of those issues, and it makes the issues harder to solve. Um, there was an effort in the Klamath to try and come up with a giant kumbaya settlement. You know, I think people talked about we're going to have a a salmon festival and a potato festival or something like fish and chips was the shorthand for mm-hmm. it. Um, and the, the defect in that was that the folks that wanted dam removal were linking dam removal on the main stem Klamath to this upper basin water deal, which would give irrigated agriculture about as much water as it had ever used in the basin. And that was not going to solve the problem because the, the water deal was built upon this make-believe water that didn't really exist. You can't simultaneously give irrigated agriculture all the water it wants and have sufficient flows for salmon in the river. It just doesn't add up mathematically. And yet people were willing to overlook that because they thought it was essential to have the irrigators supporting the overall deal so that they could get the dams out. Well, look what's happening now. The dams are coming out, whether or not we have a water deal in the upper basin. We were always pushing for delinking those two big results, and that's what's come to pass. Let's 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 focus a bit on the the, the dam removal because that is something that has been um, you know very much happening in the last decade or so. Is there any reason to keep dams in, or is, or is anybody holding? Is there anyone that wants dams to stick around? Well, sure. I mean, there there are lots of, you know, I may get struck by lightning, legitimate <laughs> dams out there that, that provide benefits for society. We're largely talking about obsolete dams. And, you know, I think there's something like 85,000 dams in the United States. Only something like 1,750 of those produce hydropower. A lot of the dams we've been involved with um, had no hydropower function or it if they did, it was years past the time when they had produced any hydropower, or they had no flood control function, or they had neither. And so um, there are many, many irrigation diversion dams that could be taken out to provide fish passage, to give a fighting chance to salmon, steelhead, and fish that migrate up and down within a stream. 
the function of those dams could be replaced with pumps, if they're even still being used at all, um, and everybody would be better off. This is, this is one of the main things we need to do to, to meet the challenge of climate change for our rivers is provide this connectivity for the species that use the river so that they can get up to the cold headwaters, do their spawning thing in the cold headwaters, and then get back to the ocean. One of the, one of the dam debates, uh, and that, that is not an FCC naughty word, one of the dam debates uh, that I found interesting in Oregon is in Bend. And I, I spent a few years there running a newspaper, and, and, and the, the dam that makes Mere Pond and boy, it's, it's, it, it was so, that dam is leaking, it is falling apart, but, but the community by and large did not want to get rid of it. Um, and, and, and it seemed for romantic and nostalgic reasons, as opposed to some of the other reasons uh, you're talking about. And, and is that, is that a dam that you guys have been looking at? That's not one that we've gotten involved with. <laughs> probably smartly. I think there's some. There are probably some real estate interests that are very interested in maintaining that dam as well. I mean, I can tell you that uh, certainly we could talk about other dams we've been intimately involved with. We we have been involved with Pelton Round Butte, lower down on the Deschutes. Um, we tend to get involved, not exclusively, but we tend to get involved where there are migratory fish involved. Um, and so, you know, now we're, we're actively looking at a couple dams that are really important. They're, in fact, the two highest ranked dams that are privately owned on Oregon's fish passage priority list. And those are Pomeroy Dam on the Illinois River and Winchester Dam on the North Umpqua. We're, we're looking at those two dams as candidates. Uh, and when you say privately out. owned, uh, who, by... by, by individuals or is this by a privately by a corporation pomeroy is owned you know it could be by a corporation uh, um they are not owned by the federal government for example like bonneville or the mm-hmm. dalles dams uh, winchester is owned by the winchester water control district its only function is uh to back up water on the north umpqua so there can be a water skiing pond there for folks that live around the edge of the of the the pond it's a safety hazard. Uh, the dam was almost condemned by the state of Oregon several years ago. You know, it's it's almost a, it's a dangerous situation in some ways because the dam is not well maintained. It was not well constructed to begin with. It has holes in it, but it also we believe delays um, the up and downstream migration of steelhead on the North Umpqua, and that is a world class, world famous steelhead river. It also affects coho salmon, we believe, um, and it affects lamprey, which are important to uh, the Cow Creek folks, tribes down there. And when you say it's a, uh, potentially dangerous, in that it may break and and cause flooding, in that what 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 danger does it pose? Well, you you could you could see a scenario in a high flow situation where the dam breaches and um, you know it just causes debris to be in the river. It causes a big pulse flow to go down the river. There's not that much water stored there. It's about, you know, four to 500 acre feet, which is the amount of water that covers an acre a foot deep. Um, so it's not like the breaching of a gigantic dam, which holds thousands of acre feet of water. But it, it, it's not a well-maintained dam. Uh, it's got real problems. And and again, staying on that that example for a bit, I, it, I mean, the function that you said it serves is that it does, it backs up a lake that is used for water skiing and wakeboarding. 
uh, which is, you know, that that for a dozen families, two dozen families, whatever it is, that's an important part of their lifestyle and of their property values. And 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 that's that has to be a difficult conversation to have somebody give that up. Because essentially, I mean, I, I would imagine they're going to be left with uh, no lake and 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 probably docks that go into. I don't I don't know if they'd have docks, but you know, I, I'll I'll give you an analog. When Savage Rapids Dam came out on the Rogue, I got a phone call from a guy who owned a piece of property uh, on the banks of the former reservoir pool, and he was moving up from California, um, and he was he was mad as hell. He was calling, you know. Doggone it, you know, this is going to affect my property value. He also said he liked to fish for bass. And that was one reason he bought the property, because there was a, a pool of water there in his front yard. And I just said, well, wait a minute. Have you considered the effect on your property value of having a world-class salmon river in your front yard, a free-flowing salmon river? And he kind of, you know, I could hear him kind of, <laughs> on the phone, scratching his head, going, "Well, I didn't really think about that." You, you set the hook, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think from a property value perspective, yeah, there are issues, but I think there are also huge benefits to having a healthy river in your front yard with healthy runs of anadromous fish that people come from all over the world to fish for and spend millions and millions of dollars annually in the local economy. You know, I think the benefits that were estimated on the removal of Savage Rapids Dam were $5 million a year, and this is in, you know, 1990s dollars, would be injected into the local economy simply upon because of the presence of additional fish in the river. And I'm sure those numbers are much larger than that in today's dollars. So this is a, a recurring sustainable resource for local economies if we can get these fisheries back. John DeVoe is executive director for Water Watch, and and now you brought in you brought in a couple different music choices, but uh, we're going to focus in on on one by James McMurtry. Um, do you want to set that up for us? <laughs> sure. Uh, James is the son of Larry McMurtry, the famous Western author, and James is a rock country musician. He's got a song called Level Land. There's a it's it's a it's a song about settlers coming west and kind of running out of gas in western Texas and ending up in this place. And there's a verse in the song, um, and it goes, Grandpa grew dry land wheat, stood on his own two feet, his mind got incomplete, and they put him in a home. And this is from the perspective of the son singing this, Daddy's cotton grows so high, sucks the water table dry, his rolling sprinklers circle by, bleeding it to the bone. Um, and that, you know, I think that is emblematic of what's going on in large parts of the West, certainly with some of the major aquifers in the West, like the Edwards Aquifer in West Texas, the Ogallala Aquifer in the Plains. And it's certainly happening in Oregon, too. We have a huge, huge groundwater problem that I would love an opportunity to talk about in this state. Um, we are not maintaining our groundwater sustainably. We don't even have the data to know how much there is as the state is is giving away permits um, to use it. And groundwater is going to, it's like, it's like writing checks on your checkbook when you don't know the balance. That's what we're doing in this state. And with climate change coming to Oregon, groundwater is going to be critical. 
Flatter than a tabletop Makes you wonder why they stopped here Wagon must have lost a wheel Or they lacked ambition one In the great migration west Separated from the rest Though they might have tried their best They never caught the sun So they sunk some roots down in this dirt To keep from blowing off the earth They built a town right here And when the dust had all but cleared They called it Level Edge The pride of man Level Edge Granddad grew dry land wheat Stood on his own two feet His mind went incomplete And they put him in the home Daddy's cotton grows so high Sucks the water table dry The center pivot circles by Bleeding it to the bone And I won't be here when there comes a day It all dries up and blows away I'd hang around just to see But they've never had much use for me in Level Edge They don't understand me Out in Level Edge And I watch those jet trails carving up that big blue sky Coast to coasters, watch them go I don't blame them one damn bit If they never look down on this Not much down here they'd want to know Just level edge As far as you can point your head Nothing but level edge used to roll her hair back before the central air we'd sit outside and watch the stars at night she'd tell me to make a wish I'd wish we both could fly I don't think she's seen the sky since we got the satellite dish and I can hear the marching band Doing the best they can to play Smoke on the water Joy to the world I paid up all my debts Got some change left over yet And I'm getting on a whisper jet Gonna fly as far as I can get From level land Done the best I can Out in level land
That was James McMurtry. This is the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joined in the studio by John DeVoe, who is the executive director for, for Water Watch. Um, before the, the music break, you were talking about groundwater. Can you can you just let's start by just explaining what is groundwater? And, and, and you were explaining some of the concerns of writing checks without knowing the balance. Yeah, groundwater. I mean, we have these things called aquifers, which is just a fancy word for saturated underground geological areas where there's water in the soil and the space between the rock or the soil, whatever it is. In many parts of the state, um, we have very large aquifers. For example, if you go to the Deschutes River in the dry season, about 90% of the water you're seeing there is, is groundwater that has come up and expressed into the river and is now flowing north of the Columbia. There are many rivers in Oregon, the Metolius River, the Fall River, uh, the Deschutes, even the Klamath River relies heavily on groundwater, the Mackenzie River and its headwaters. These are famous, famous rivers. Um, and farmers use groundwater, cities use groundwater. We in Portland have a backup well field where we drink water out of aquifers next to the Columbia River out by Boeing and Cascade. Um, so groundwater, I think that the data is that over a million people in Oregon rely on groundwater for drinking water, and over 5,000 farms in the state use groundwater to grow crops. It's a huge economic and environmental ecological driver for the state. Why can, why can it not be measured what, what, what volume is, is out there or, or giving an idea of what capacity there is? Well, that's, that's the rub, is it can be. There are ways to determine how much water is in an aquifer, what a sustainable yield from that aquifer might be. We just haven't given that priority as a state and invested in collecting the data so we know whether or not we're making sustainable decisions when we issue new groundwater rights in the state. And I can tell you uh, that based on our review in 2016 and 17. 80% of the groundwater permits in Oregon were issued without knowing whether there was enough water to support the proposed use. Um, we are flying blind in the state with respect to groundwater, and, that, and that's pretty disturbing to me and, and a number of other people. Who can change that policy, and, 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 and what, what needs to happen to move it from here to, to, to someplace more sustainable? Well, the legislature could change the policy. The governor has some control over it. I mean, the governor obviously can propose money for studies in her budget. Uh, the legislature can appropriate those funds. Uh, the Water Resources Department can decide in its budget to ask for that kind of money. Um, and we can also control things by saying no when we don't have the data to determine whether a proposed use is sustainable or not. We could use the precautionary principle. Um, but the state's policy is to say yes when they don't know whether it's sustainable or not. And what we've seen in places like the Umatilla Basin, in the Malheur Lakes Basin out by Malheur National Wildlife Refuge is the state's policy has been to just give away rights without knowing whether they create a problem or not. And then when a problem happens, they give a little money to the community and say, uh, well, why don't you figure out how to solve this? Communities aren't really equipped to do that, and we really shouldn't be creating those problems for communities in the first place. So it's really a legislative problem. It's a money problem, but it would not take a gigantic sum of money 
to get a handle on this and start operating sustainably. I mean, th- this is this is fascinating. Learning more about um, how how essential water rights are, and water sharing, and water uh, privileges are to to the state of Oregon's economy and its recreation and to its environment. Um, we need to wrap up our our time talking with you, but let's wrap up. Are you optimi- optimistic or pessimistic about the next fifteen years here, and and briefly why? Well, it's a little bit pessimistic right now that when we have a supermajority and a, a D governor in the office in, in the governorship and we're unable to move bills and get funding for things that seem really, really important to the future of the state. The governor does have a proposed water vision for the next century. It's not well developed. It potentially could be helpful. It could also resurrect a lot of the old strategies that have caused problems around the West. It could be potentially a massive transfer of public wealth to private interests. That's not what we need. We need to do it differently and do it right if we're going to get ahead of these curves. So, you know, I guess I'm pessimistic and optimistic. I mean, we have chances to do it right, but we're going to have to get our act together to get there. Well, I appreciate that Water Watch is out there uh, helping get the act together. We're doing, yeah, we're doing what we can. I mean, we've been very influential and we intend to continue to uh, exert influence wherever we can. John DeVoe is Executive Director for Water Watch. Thank you for coming in to speak with us. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is made possible by Beneficial State Bank, a certified B Corp that holds to a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our producer is me, Rachel Miller-Howard. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, and ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.